Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. I hope you had a good weekend. It's Monday, January the 31st, 2022. Uh, January of 2022, I think, was better than January of 2021, at least from the point of view of American democracy. Uh, there was no insurrection in January 2022, this January, although Donald Trump continues to push the envelope, if that's the right way to describe it, on what happened uh, in January, on January 6th, 2021. He made a speech over the weekend in Texas saying that he would consider pardons for the Jan 6 defendants if he's elected next time around. I don't quite know why or how that will happen, but he's certainly suggesting, given his way of approaching politics and the election, that the voting system was rigged. Um, some Republicans, at least um, according to Reuters, are warning that this speech over the weekend shows that he would do it all, all over again. I'm not sure what all over again means in, in terms of perhaps encouraging an insurrection. Certainly, uh, the Trump speech and the, um, the politics surrounding that remind us of the importance of uh, federal voting rights legislation. And this remains an important issue, a very controversial issue in the United States. This headline from The Guardian reminds us of it. Uh, earlier this month, um, uh, on the evening of January the 12th, the Democrats combined the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act into a single bill, the Freedom to Vote John R. Lewis Act. Um, people are calling this uh, a mega bill, um, and there's still quite a lot of confusion and debate about uh, what the Democrats put into this mega bill and what got left out. I've been doing some research this morning. Lots of bullets on what would be involved, making the state, making the states, making voting more accessible for people with disabilities, allowing voting by mail. Lots of detail. A lot of it still remains at least confusing. Um, the Brennan Center, which is affiliated with New York University Law School, put out a piece debunking false claims about the Voting Rights Act. Uh, I always rely in some ways on organizations like the Brennan Center, which are defenders of democracy. Um, they, they say, the Brennan Center, that they are working to build an America that is democratic, just and free. Their president is Michael Waldman, and I'm thrilled that Michael is a guest today on my show, talking to me from New York. Uh, his classic book, uh, The Fight to Vote, has been reissued with a new update with lots of uh, new stuff, particularly on the Trump presidency in January the 6th, 2021. So, uh, Michael, apologies for such a, a long-winded Trumpian introduction. Uh, this new bill, we're not constitutional scholars, you are, but in very simple terms, uh, the bill that, that got combined, uh, the mega bill in, uh, in, 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 on January the 13th, what, what does it mean? What does it comprise of? And why is it important for us? 
Well, thank you for having me. And it's a great question. The bill does some pretty important things. It sets national standards uh, for our elections. States run elections, but it is emphatically constitutionally within the power of the federal government to set national standards on key things uh, so that everyone in the states has the chance to vote in a way that is free and fair and secure. So it sets national standards uh, on early voting, making sure people have access to vote by mail, uh, automatic voter registration. It also bans gerrymandering. That's the drawing of the district lines by the politicians in a way that uh, manipulates them for their benefit or completely Michael is this retroactive or does it just draw a line under gerrymandering and says as we go forward we can't do this anymore well that's a great question and of course the sooner the bill gets passed the <laughs> the more it can be in, in in effect now but if the bill were to go into effect today it would apply to the maps being drawn in the states right now all, all the more reason I would say why it would be a good thing to pass it because as you know, both p political parties uh, gerrymander. Uh, they didn't invent it last week. It's something that's been done since the beginning of the country, but it's getting worse. Computers are making it more effective. And so it, I think this kind of national standard is important. And the last big thing it does it, uh, is it addresses the longstanding and continued issue of racial discrimination in voting. Um, the Voting Rights Act was in many ways the most effective civil rights law the United States has. It was gutted by the U.S. Supreme Court in two separate decisions. This bill would restore it to its full strength. And it does a few other important things as well, including uh, revealing the dark money that is in politics, the secret big campaign contributions that are, that are now um, saturating the political system. Uh, it's a long bill, but it, 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 it no longer than all the other bills that get passed in Congress. It does important things, and it is um, very much constitutional. You'll hear people say, oh, it's, it's, uh, it's not the role of the federal government to do this. This is actually exactly what the Constitution thought the federal government ought to do. Uh, Michael, we had a uh, constitutional scholar from Emory University, Carol Anson, an old friend of mine on the show. She's has some very strong views on uh, on on elections, voting rights, and particularly race and racism. Um, your new addition, at least according uh, to the Brennan Center, uh, puts today's attacks on democracy in the context of history. How rooted in the need to reform the system is racism? Is that the core issue that the Republicans? Some people would suggest, I think, including Carol, that they're trying to go back, trying to go back to a system which discriminated against people of color. Well, the fight to <clears throat> ensure voting rights in our country goes back to the country's beginning. It always has involved issues of race. It has often also been the case that there have been efforts to make it harder for immigrants uh, to vote. Uh, and, and that is true today and also, of course, bound up in race as well. Um, this issue... Uh, uh, jumping in here, Michael, why? Is it because some parties believe that migrants, poor people, people of color won't vote for them? I mean, it's not a moral decision. They're not against the idea of these people voting. They simply want to protect their own political power. Is that fair? Well, I think that 
when you look at, at at the whole story, you know, there've always been people demanding a seat at the table, always been people saying, uh, we want to, the ability to fully participate uh, and always been people also pushing back, wanting to hold on maybe to the power they have. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of partisanship to it. I think there's also, unfortunately, some deeper racial animus, maybe not even uh, fully, fully spoken out loud, where it's not just that people are voting uh, who who vote maybe for a different party, but that they don't really look like us. They 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 seem different. They seem like the other, and uh, you hear this in the notion that is pushed uh, of the big lie of a stolen election somehow uh, mysteriously. The election. Was are stolen. you suggesting these people who tend to be white are saying this because they can't believe that they lost because they surround themselves with other white people and they somehow? Um, devalue the votes and presence of people of other skins? What you hear, of course, when you talk to or read interviews with uh, Trump supporters, they they just can't believe it could be possible that Biden and Harris won, um, partly because everyone they know was for Trump uh, and partly because Trump told them that the only way he could lose is fraud. In fairness, I think for a lot of Democrats, it's probably similar. <laughs> we are, in a, of course, a very polarized. Yeah, for uh, me living in San Francisco, right I, I still have yet to meet a Trump supporter. And I'm sure the same is true of you in uh, Manhattan, in New York. Uh, yeah, there's a few more of them, but they don't speak up very much. Um, so I think that, you know, one of the things that's noteworthy is, of course, as the country has divided into two political parties, one more on the left, the other more on the right. They've become... It's more than a political party, Michael. It's a it's a cultural system. It's a social system. It's an economy, isn't it? Well, I, I read someone say the other day um, that if someone 50 years ago were brought back to life and was told that um, not only would interracial marriage or, or be legal, or 60 years ago, not only would interracial marriage be legal, but that something like 17% of marriages are between different races, but that it would be very frowned upon to marry someone whose family is from a different political party. I think that would be considered rather shocking to that person from way back then. Um, you know, th these strains, Carol Anderson is exactly right, that they play out in their ugliest form over and over again uh, in the effort to keep black people in particular from voting. Um, Do you believe, um, and I don't want to put words into Carol's mouth because that would be inappropriate and she would never forgive me, but um, there are some people on the left, particularly on the African-American left, who believe that the Republicans are trying to go back with these voting reforms or the, uh, the undermining of voting reforms to Jim Crow, not to slavery, but certainly to Jim Crow. Do you believe that, Michael? Or is that exaggerated? Is that hyperbole? Is that paranoia on the left? Well, what I would say is a couple of things about Jim Crow. Jim Crow, of course, was a system where in the South, black people couldn't vote, basically. Um, however, the rules didn't usually didn't say that. They were more technical. They were more arcane. And they started out quietly. Um, and they got worse and worse over time. So do I think that right now that the people pushing these laws, you know, want to go back to a time when black people are prohibited from voting? Um, I, I sure hope not. But what is noteworthy is that when you look at the 19 states that passed 
34 new laws last year uh, in response in many ways to this to the big lie of the stolen election. You know, some of them are worse than others. A lot of them got softened during the legislative process, but far too often they are targeted at black voters and Latino voters and Asian and other voters like that as well. In other words, they're not as bad as, as, a, as a poll tax or a literacy test, um, but they are, when you look at them, very carefully targeted. And what I worry about as well, and this is one of the reasons why national legislation, I think, is so important, like the Voting Rights Act being restored, like the Freedom to Vote Act, is, you know, right now, if Congress cannot set pass a national voting rights bill because of the filibuster, even with a Democratic president supporting it and it passing the House of Representatives and having a majority of the Senate supporting it, but because of the filibuster, it cannot pass. And federal courts will not protect voting rights because this Supreme Court is, uh, in many respects, quite hostile. It has never yet found one of these state voting laws in the past decade uh, to to be worthy of overturning. If Congress cannot act and the courts will not act, then these states have a green light to do their worst. And what history does show is things can get worse. <laughs> they certainly can. And you're, you're the historian amongst us, uh, Michael. Recently, we had uh, Barbara F. Walter, a uh, scholar on civil wars on the show, talking about the likelihood of a second civil war in America. And one of the things that she argues in the book and on the show that America has become what she calls an anocracy, a form of government that's loosely defined as part democracy and part dictatorship. Let's watch what um, Barbara said on the show a couple of weeks ago. Anocracies are important, and the reason why um, I start the book with them is that this model that was developed um, after putting in 56 different variables, everything from poverty to income inequality to um, how heterogeneous ethnically a country was, we put in all these variables and only two ended up coming out um, particularly important in helping to predict where we're likely to see um, a violence. The first was this variable we call anocracy. Um, countries that um, had elements of both autocracy and democracy were the ones that were at greatest risk of civil war. In fact, when we looked at the data, the most democratic countries and the most autocratic countries um, rarely had civil wars. The civil wars tended to happen in the middle. The second factor was what we called ethnic factionalism. Ethnic factionalism being uh, critically important. Uh, um, Michael, do we live in an anocracy? Is Barbara Walter right? Is America become this anocratic system somewhere between democracy and autocracy? You know, um, I'd have to think about that. I have not read her book. I know a lot of people think highly of it. Um, I, think I don't think you have to read the book. I mean, it's, it, she basically doesn't believe that America is a democracy at the moment. I think there are very strong elements of democracy in our country and very, very significant baked in and built in obstacles to that democracy. And some people are pushing pretty hard to move us away from that democracy. 
you know, the one thing that is new. So many of the fights we're having today about who can vote, about race, about immigrants, those are fights that we've had all throughout our, our country's history. What is, I believe, new and scary in that way is what we're seeing from Donald Trump and his followers. Um, I can't think of another time except perhaps going back to the beginning of the Civil War where the leader of a major party, a president of the United States, and the tens of millions of people who follow him basically say the election was rigged, that the democracy is a fake. And, you know, we now know and, and you know, the South acknowledged Lincoln won. <laughs> that's why they that's why they, they well, didn't have much choice. I think it <laughs> wasn't they, yeah. uh, it, it wasn't a philosophical decision, Michael. Well, they, but they, the they, they acknowledged. Well, but Biden also won. But, you know, Jefferson Davis didn't say, no, Lincoln didn't win. They just they, said, this yeah, is the I end mean, of our country. But, you know, yeah. the um, the the one of the things we now know is. Um, and, and of course, um Trump, in addition to the speech he gave at the rally the other day, issued a statement in recent days attacking Mike Pence for refusing to, quote, overturn the election, uh, thus, you know, saying out loud what, what we've all said he was really trying to do. But if we now know that Trump was, as he says, trying to overturn the election, that he was really trying to overturn American democracy from his perch in the Oval Office, which is just a devastating and extraordinary thing. But we also know from watching it that it was incompetent and chaotic and clown-like. Well, there's no guarantee that the next time we'll be incompetent and clown-like. Systematically trying to remove the obstacles to prevent him or somebody else from from ramming their way through an election and, and uh, quote, overturning the election next time. Michael, you quote in the book or in the, um, the addition to the book, the, the Fight to Vote, um, a piece by uh, Robert Kagan, influential piece. Kagan wrote late last year that our constitutional crisis is already here and it's in the Republican Party. That was an interesting piece also in the New York Times uh, earlier this month, an op-ed by two former guests of mine on the show, Jonathan Rausch and Peter Weiner, both conservative thinkers, uh, suggesting that the, the constitutional crisis in America is on the right rather than the left. Do you agree with that? Is really the problem then, and, and you touch on this and seem to suggest it in some way in, 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 in the last chapter in your book, is the, is the anocratic crisis in America the crisis of the Republican Party and not the Democratic Party? I would say right now, uh, it's hard to escape that conclusion. I would say it is not all Republicans, uh, but right now, uh, we don't see something like this. We don't see threats like this coming from Democrats. We did it in 1861, but right now we don't. Um, and and we, we see uh, Trump, who still is the most prominent and in many ways, powerful person in that party. Um, and 70% of his supporters say they believe the election was stolen. Now, look, it's very possible a lot of them are just saying that to pollsters, you know, because they think it'll make the liberals mad. But I, I think it's a lot more than that. But is it more um, than and, that also? I, think, uh, I would say that there are, are also millions of Republicans, uh, I believe, 
who are very unhappy or uncomfortable with this. And there has to be a way, and this is a political challenge, to find, uh, to build a pro-democracy movement of breadth that can unite everybody who supports maintaining and strengthening our democracy uh, of, of any party. Yeah, you, you talk about this in the book, the need for new parties. I was struck over the weekend with Tucker Carlson, a Fox News commentator, very popular on the right, pro-Russian rant, uh, at least in the language of the Washington Post when it comes to the Ukraine. Um, but isn't something happening on the Republican Party and more of a, just a, a simply a, a, along that Carlson defense of Putin, um, a reversion to realpolitik? You've had that throughout American history. It happened in the debates over the Federalist Papers, it happened throughout the 19th century. There's nothing necessarily undemocratic about that. Well, look, um, I think the question of what to do relating to Russia and Ukraine is a challenging question for anybody because um, uh, Ukraine is on Russia's border and it is not on our border. It is not in NATO. It may want to be in NATO, but it is not in NATO. And so there are obviously all kinds of um debates to be had about how to how to stop Putin from invading but do we want to overcommit and become involved in conflict those are those are it's perhaps predictable that Tucker Carlson takes Putin's side but there's an argument to be made but what is less justifiable by any means and not unrelated is Tucker Carlson's appalling shilling for Hungary and yeah, for the, they've the idealized regime the, uh, the regime of Orban. You know, we, it, we've, we've had a number of shows about Hungary. We had um, uh, some. Um, we had somebody from Central European University, George Soros's institution, that got thrown out. It's an important subject. We are talking but, but uh, it, with it, it, uh, it, Michael Waldman, the author of "The Fight to Vote," a classic book which has been reissued with uh, a new section updating on the struggle to vote, the struggle to defend our democracy. Michael, we're going to take a short break. And afterwards, I want to talk about how to fix this. We've talked about the problems, problems in the Republican Party, perhaps the systematic problems. Uh, and what I want to do after the break is, is figure out how we're going to fix this, at least according to you uh, and the fight to vote uh, and the Brennan Center. So we'll be back in about 60 seconds. Hold tight, everybody. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox, or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live. 
Uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We are back with Michael Waldman, the author of The Fight to Vote. Uh, Michael, at the end of the wonderful uh, book, you quote John Adams, second president of the United States, who said famously, there is no end to it, meaning that American democracy has no end. It's always going to be chaotic, colorful, aggravating and inspiring. So how are we going to get out of this? How are we going to maintain there's no end to American democracy? Where do we begin? Well, and Adams, uh, Adams actually was responding to the idea that they should, when he wrote the Constitution of Massachusetts, the newly independent state of Massachusetts, right after it declared independence from Great Britain, that they should end the property requirement for voting, thus letting working class and poor men vote. And Adams said, if we do that, women will demand the right to vote and lads of 18 will demand the right to vote. Oh, and dear. men who have not a farthing to their name will demand the right to vote. He said, there will be no end of it. And, and we're going to continue to have these fights. Um, but I do think that one of the lessons of history, which we should be applying today, is there are times when you have to fight for the right to vote or against people who will stop it. And there are times when the answer is new legislation, new laws. Um, and thus the federal legislation that, that we Which were discussing that I think with, is yeah. so important. I think it's also really important uh, over the coming year, uh, we're going to see these fights happen in the states. You know, our country, um, these rules mostly are made in states. We're seeing them uh, in state capitals again in 2022, just like in 2021, um, and in state courts. Even as the federal courts back off, sometimes you see state courts step up every state constitution but one has an explicit protection of the right to vote stronger in many ways than the u.s constitution and what i also think we need to do uh, is make sure that this fight over our democracy is at the center of what we're talking about and at the center of our elections um it, you know we were talking about the 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 big lie and how new it is that there's a political movement, tens of millions of people willing to upend many of our democratic institutions. And that's new and that's scary. But another thing that is is new in recent years, at least, is there's kind of a counter movement, partly partly in response to that, uh, in, in, in many ways in, re, in response to and in an effort to enact this federal legislation. There's a, a pro-democracy movement that is gaining in breadth mm. and energy. Um, you even see politicians uh, for the first time running on this issue as the issue they're identified with. I think of somebody like Stacey Abrams in Georgia, who's a candidate for governor. Yeah, I was when I was reading your book, it occurred to me that Stacey Abrams might represent the kind of new politician that America needs, perhaps even a new party. We had um, 
We've done a number of shows about voting rights. We had the historian Martha S. Jones, who's written some wonderful work on the struggle of black women to, to vote. Um, she argues that black women should know that better than anyone. Uh, do you think that African-American women, and you know, represented obviously by somebody like Stacey Abrams, perhaps also by uh, Carol Anderson, that they somehow have the, the, the spirit of, 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 of a real American more than others? Are they the, the carriers of the American spirit these days? Well, I think that because it has required so much effort and blood and sacrifice to get a piece of the American pie, in a sense, the value of it is all the more evident uh, to people who've had to do that. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we've seen over and over again, we saw it in the civil rights movement, we saw it in the fight for voting rights, we saw it in Fannie Lou Hamer and her drive for voting rights in the Democratic Party at the Democratic Convention in 1964. We saw the particular moral force and, and practical energy of black women. And of course, black women are a very important part of the Democratic Party uh, you know, both the rank and file who do the who do the work in the elections, but but also of the electorate. And so I think I mean, they elected uh, they elected Biden without the, the, the with, primary vote. But uh, that's right. In, in in South Carolina. And look, I think uh, as we tape this conversation, um, Justice Breyer has just retired. Um, Biden, when he was running for president, said yeah. that he would appoint a black woman. Um, a lot of people um, uh, who are looking for something to criticize right now are getting the vapors and saying, oh, my goodness, this is so terrible to make a yeah, promise. It's affirmative time. action, the, uh, the Senator Wicker. Yeah, except the of weekend, course, Ronald, uh, Ronald Reagan announced he would appoint a woman. Um, uh, William Brennan, who my organization, the Brennan Center, is named after he was uh it was started by his family and clerks a quarter century ago he was the great liberal justice on the supreme court well he was appointed because we know because president eisenhower was looking for a catholic democrat from a swing state in an election year and and brennan who was on a state supreme court and brennan fit the bill um, there is no end to it is there Michael? There's, no, there's always a lot of politics and politics and i think it's about time that with all the very, very qualified black women lawyers out there, I think it would be wonderful to have uh, one of them on the court. Certainly, Do you think that um, though somebody like Stacey Abrams, could she reinvent herself as not just the figure on the left of the Democratic Party? If we're going to have new politicians and new political parties, we need new ways of thinking as well. Is there a possibility for somebody like Abrams or, or somebody else, say, uh, perhaps another black woman, to, to, to carve She's a new a... way of thinking that allows us to escape the stereotypes of the left as well. She's, yeah, I mean, I think she is a really interesting figure because um, bef she is really a brilliant person. She was the Democratic leader in the state legislature. She was a tax lawyer. Um, she was known as a very pragmatic, um, compromise-oriented politician, an insider who could get stuff done. And she has taken on this role of a prophetic voice on voting rights. And one of the things the book talks about is that we've had the fight to win expanded voting rights often has required people from the outside pushing and 
canny political figures on the inside making it happen. And that was true um, in the in the relationship between Frederick Douglass um, and Abraham Lincoln. Uh, um, yeah, right. so you you like talk that. about the 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 Lincoln Douglas debates as well, um, which is obviously a different Douglas. What about the role of education here, um, Michael? You suggest that uh, education is important in reiterating the value of democracy and voting rights in America. I'm always a little, I have to admit, I'm always a little skeptical when people fall back on education. The system is so in crisis on so many levels. And when people say, well, we need better education, it often suggests to me that they really don't have a fix. Is education a viable fix for all this stuff? Well, I wouldn't want to just improve the curriculum and then wait 20 years. <laughs> you know, I don't think that would work so well. Uh, look, I think one of the one of the challenges is to have everybody understand that these values of the American system as an ideal of the Declaration of Independence of the Constitution that those are the things that hold us together. I think it's hard to do that without it being inculcated in some way in our educational system. But I agree that education doesn't end when school ends and education is not enough. But when Dr. King got up, I used to be a speechwriter. I was chief speechwriter for President Clinton. So I, I thought about this a lot. When Dr. King got up at the March on Washington and said, um, I have a dream that we will live out the true meaning of our creed, that all men are created equal. Um, his audience knew very well that he was quoting the Declaration of Independence, and they knew very well uh, that he was standing in front of the statue of Abraham Lincoln, who also quoted the Declaration of Independence in the, in the Gettysburg Address. Now the audience would hear a speech like that and say, what was that? But if you quote a TV show or a song, people would get the pop culture reference. So um, I, I think that the loss of some of these basic common bits of language and shared experience uh, is, is a real loss and actually hurts the fight for voting rights. And, and for that reason, among many others, I reject the idea that this country is hopeless. I reject the idea that this is just a long, unbroken litany of oppression. That's just not the actual history of the country. There have been extraordinary times of progress made by ordinary men and women fighting uh, to make the country better. I would like us to be one of those moments again. Um, but a part of getting to that is understanding that it is possible for it to happen. And it's just sort of glib to say it can never happen. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you may not agree with Barbara Walter on the anocracy, but Barbara is very much in your camp. Let me show you another clip from Barbara and then we'll, we'll wrap up here. And you make it clear that your mother, I think, came from Switzerland, your husband was from Canada, and that at one point you were even thinking of leaving the country. But you're a believer. And for you, ultimately, perhaps in contrast with somebody like Stephen Marsh, who, as it happens, lives in Canada, uh, you're staying and you're fighting against civil war. Is that fair? Yes, it is. So the United States is going to be the first majority white country in the world to transition to majority non-white. But it's going to happen in Canada. It's going to happen in New Zealand. It's going to happen in the UK. It's going to happen with all the majority white European countries by about 
2,100. So the United States, I think, has this opportunity to lead the world, to show it how we can transition from uh, what had once been an, an ethnically or a relatively ethnically homogeneous country to a multi-ethnic country and still maintain democracy and still economically thrive and in fact come out better as a result. So I'm committed to that ideal. I really do believe we will be better. I live in California. California is already minority white and it has thrived as a minority white um, state. And, and I really, really do wanna be here to help, um, help America with that transition. Do you agree, Michael, with Barbara, that uh, America can once again lead the world? It led the world in the 19th century and late 18th century in terms of building democracy, that it can rebuild its democracy as a multi-ethnic uh, representative cultural political system? I think she's right. I think she has to be right because the alternative uh, is disaster. Civil war, um, essentially, the alternative, right? Or at least political violence and, and uh, terrorism and all kinds of other things, short of two armies facing off against uh, each other, uh, you know, in, with fixed lines with bayonets. I mean, she's also, it's also right, you're exactly right, that we have a chance to build a, a multiracial democracy. In the late 1800s, they made some progress and then had real, real setbacks in, uh, in, in bringing black men in particular into our democracy. But the demographic changes too in that time were quite extraordinary from their perspective, which was this was a country that was dominated by white Protestants. And to them for a long time, that was what it meant to be an American. Well, all of a sudden you had millions of immigrants uh, from Europe, from Southern Europe, from Eastern Europe, from Ireland, who were Catholic, especially, and Jewish also, but especially Catholic. And to the um, to the white Protestants of that time, in some ways, that was just as horrifying a prospect as many people might find the demographic changes today. Um, we it, it took a lot to get past that point, but we did it, and we built a a much more um, multi-ethnic, multi-religious country in the 20th century than, than other places. And we have no choice but to do it again. And I'm, I'm with her in that I find it to be an exciting, uh, uh, an exciting prospect. Uh, and a place like California has far from suffered from, from having the diversity that it has. It has one of the strongest economies in the world. And uh, I think uh, we need to have that positive vision of what the country can look like too as opposed to just the fiercely reactionary response of people who don't want anything to change, because that's the one thing we know isn't going to happen. There is indeed no end to it, as Michael Waldman reminds us in um, his revised uh, edition of his classic book, The Fight to Vote. Michael, uh, wonderful to talk to you. Everyone needs to read your book, both uh, for constitutional education and also i think for the spirit of of, of 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 fighting to vote not literally but in a symbolic sense uh, in addition to uh your new old book michael what else should people be reading in these uh strange times as american democracy totters in uh late january early february 2022 i know you're in uh 
the southern tip of Manhattan as we speak. I am. And, you know, um, there, there's a lot to learn from history. I always find that uh, I, I'm both enthralled by the stories and the people, but also I, I, I can learn a lot. Um, it, it, for any of your listeners who have not had the chance to do so, I always encourage people to read the books by Robert Caro um, about Lyndon Johnson. There are now four volumes of, of a biography. He's hard at work on the fifth. Um, and, uh, the, the we'll first get him book, on the show, I don't know if we can get him, but it'd be he, not, he's, 80, he's in his mid eighties and he puts on a suit and tie every day and goes to his office and works. So we don't want to bother him. <laughs> um, but he, uh, the first book, especially it's called the path to power. I think I've read it maybe three times about Lyndon Johnson. When he grew up, it, it very poor in what was basically, uh, an underdeveloped country. What, uh, and how he clawed his way into power, how um, how the role of campaign money, what it was like to run for office, the New Deal, the role of the New Deal in transforming a place like Texas. It's an, just it's an extraordinary book. And another book, which is um, about when Johnson was the majority leader of the United States Senate, uh, called Master of the Senate. And took this body that then and now was considered the graveyard of good ideas, dysfunctional then and now. Uh, and Johnson, by force of his personality and his political genius, managed to uh, make it work and actually get a civil rights bill, the first modern one, passed in 1957. It's, it's, it's also an extraordinary book. And there are works of, um, of liter literature as well. Literary nonfiction. I can't LBJ, then what about Trotsky? Should we be reading about Trotsky, Michael? I did say that I wasn't sure I was going to recommend the book I'm actually reading right now, which is a biography of Trotsky, just because Leon Trotsky, uh, the one of the leaders of the Russian Revolution, who um, eventually broke with it and uh, with Stalin and was assassinated by Stalin in Mexico City in 1940. And was a really interesting character. And of course, as with all of these books about the early Russian revolution, um, you know, uh, it, it, the question is always, were the seeds of the totalitarian police state there from the beginning, or was that a wrong turn? Um, and I hope Tucker, Tucker Carlson doesn't end up with a, with an ax in his head in Mexico city. We uh, should well, see. I certainly, I um, I hope not as well, but, but certainly uh, the, uh, sort of this, the obsession with power that Lenin introduced into the Bolshevik party that was continued by Stalin to some extent, Trotsky, although criticized it, is probably one way of thinking about the Republicans. I, I but anyway, Michael, it was baked. I think the total, I hate, I think the totalitarianism was baked in the cake when Lenin said, we're going to seize power, whether the, on behalf of the working class, whether the working class wants it or not. In fact, whether the working class exists in Russia or not, but don't worry, we'll figure it out later. I think that led to the yeah. gulag. I think uh, what was really baked in was when Lenin gave up playing chess in Geneva because once he <laughs> stopped having fun, we 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 were I, left with the bad Lenin. Anyway, I, Michael I, Waldman, um, the author of *The Right to Vote*, uh, <laughs> as well as the president of the um, Brennan Center. Uh, real honor to talk to you, Michael. We'll have you back on the show. So much more to talk about. We didn't even get to constitutional amendments. Uh, we'll do that another time. Keep well, Michael, and. Uh, Keep doing your good work at the Brennan Center. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.